Okay. So any luck? And this one's two? No, no, there's three units that cool this. Oh, okay. So we're running on one and a half units right Okay. So you're saying that number two is the one laying on the job? Yep. That's the state worker. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> a few more weeks to offend me with those jokes and I'm retired. All right. All right. So one king six. So, um... I don't know if we'll go through everything I have. Um, and, and so basically what I have is, um, well, I want to do a few things in, um, yeah, in chapter 6 about the temple. And chapter 7 is the building of the palace. And we'll look at a few things. So instead of just reading and, and expositing stuff, we're, we're going to do a little bit of jumping stuff. Because I suspect that today's reading, you thought, that is a lot to take in moving on, Right? Okay, he built it like this, and including this. I don't know why I care. I'm sure someone did back then. Moving on, right? It, it, it's like reading the tabernacle stuff in Exodus. It's like reading genealogy, so let's be honest. Yeah. So you're thinking of all the things we could have read in the Bible, why should we care so much about the details of the temple? It's because it, it is very important to our understanding of, of the Bible, of Jesus, and everything else. So um, maybe we'll look at chapter 8, and we can always come back to chapter 8. Uh, Lord willing, we'll look at chapter 11, uh, a few verses in it, a Sunday evening. Um, but uh, let's, let's start here. At, we'll, we'll just read a few verses. Again, we're going to do a, quite a bit of skipping. So really, this is sort of the... I'm trusting that you've at least read enough of it today to be familiar. Solomon builds the temple and dedicates the temple, and all the details are, are there. Um, but then we're going to do some, some skipping. Verse 1 of chapter 6. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign of Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Now just pause there. That verse, you'd be surprised how much, how much uh, debate comes out of that verse in dating the Exodus. I find the, the subject of when did the Exodus happen a very fascinating one. I may be the only one in this church, but I find it a fascinating subject. And I've gone back and forth. We, we showed a documentary a number of years ago. Uh, we showed some of it to the youth a few weeks ago called Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus. I love it. It takes a, uh, it, 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 there's a traditional date, and this takes a very different date. It's quite compelling. Um, so if, you, so if, if you're online, uh, you got your Roku player, whatever it is, you can watch it for free on Tubi, T-U-B-I. Uh, you can watch it, and he's done other ones about the Red Sea and all that sort of stuff. But it may be something you find fascinating. But this verse seems to put a precise date on the Exodus. And so... This verse does, does create some, some problems with that. But that's neither here nor there. That's just a free little nugget. Do with it whatever you, you want, at least until you retire. <laughs> verse 2. What? Yeah, the pa- it's called Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the first one's called the Exodus. Very fascinating. Even if you don't agree with Tim Mahoney on the dating of the Exodus, and I think that's still subject to debate. Um, but he puts together a narrative. Um, for example, he goes to Jericho. He says, okay, let's look at when did Jericho fall using even secular archaeology and stuff. And we looked at some of that several weeks ago. He says, okay, um, that fits the biblical narrative. Well, that fits our time frame for the Exodus. And so he gives us the Pharaoh, which the Bible doesn't. 
Uh, he reads, we found an, an ancient document. See, this is what you all do to me. Um, we, he, he reads it, the ancient document. It is basically a diary, if I remember right, that describes the ten plagues from an Egyptian, not a Jewish slave. Describes, and it talks about uh, waters, blood, and fire from the sky, and darkness, you know. All, I mean, it's just like, I've read that somewhere, and I think it's called Exodus, you know. Um, and there's, there's a lot of stuff like that. The, the first, first documentary is excellent. The other ones, um, there's good and bad in them. Um, um, the Red Sea ones, I doubt, are on there. But uh, the next one is about whether or not Moses could have written uh, the, the Pentateuch. It gets real wonky. But that first one is really good. Really good. Um, and, oh, the, the part about Joseph. Uh, I mean, if you, if you want to see something cool, just the section on Joseph. It's like we, we, we found that it's circumstantial evidence. That's one of the problems with archaeology, particularly archaeology that old. There is in Avaris, which is where the land of Goshen is. It was called Avaris. Um, where, um, we know they were Semitic people who shepherded, um, who were shepherds. And we can look at, uh, we'll get to Solomon next week. Um, we, uh, we can look at their bones and we can see there is a period of prosperity. There's a period of, uh, of poverty. Um, and there's a period of, uh, there's, it was either there was a lot of baby boys or there was missing boys or something like that. And then all of a sudden they disappear. It's really fascinating. And we found in there 12 small pyramids and a, major, a large one in the middle. And inside is a statue of a man who's Semitic, and we can tell by the color of his hair. Uh, is not is not Egyptian. He's Semitic, and he has because we still have a, a parts of the paint, a coat of many colors. I mean, I'm no archaeologist or hist- or ancient historian or Egyptianologist, but I've read a story about that somewhere. And this person clearly was influential in the Egyptian government. Now, part of all the dating stuff with the Exodus is what do you do with the Hyksos? Uh, that took over Egypt, and then Egypt came back. So some see Joseph as part of the Hyksos group. Some see Moses as part of the Hyksos group. So I don't know. It's, there's a lot there. If you want to just spend the rest of your life chasing uh, you know, your tail, the dating of the Exodus is a fun one. Uh, but this passage here is uh, one of those that just, you know, what do we do with it? Especially if you don't hold to the traditional um, Dating. Well, anyways, verse 2. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Remember, a cubit is roughly 18 inches about of a grown man from the tip of his finger to his elbow. Uh, the vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, 10 cubits deep in front of the house. He made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. He made the side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad. The middle one was six cubits, and the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offset on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. I'm going to spare you there, okay? So what in the world does any of this mean, and why do we care? Well, I'm not going to be able to answer all your questions here. But let me do this. Chapter 6, Solomon finishes the, the temple. And the big idea of the description you have here. It's consistent with similar structures in Jewish history. The big idea is that we are actually going back to the garden. So the entire story of Israel, of the Bible so far, is we go east of the garden. We leave the garden, and mankind has been trying to get back. And they do that a number of ways. But here, when God descends to be with his people, they have returned to the garden. So, so think about 
um, what every temple requires in the Bible. Three things, just for sake of simplicity. First, the presence of God, right? And, 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 and in the simplest understanding of a temple is God dwells with his people. Very simplest understanding of a temple. It also must require atonement for sin. Because the only way God will dwell among his people is if they have been sanctified, made holy. Right? And thirdly, there must be an intercessor by which atonement can be made. So someone must offer the atoning sacrifice. So those three things. So with those three things, this is not the first temple we've seen. It's not going to be the last temple we see. So, for example, uh, the garden was a type of temple, right? So, so you have the presence of God uh, in, in the garden that was in Eden, and there at the tree of life where God walks with, with, with his people. Well, you don't need atonement, but atonement is made in the garden. In Genesis 3, the sacrifice of the animals. And, and, the, uh, and, by the way, Adam is a type of high priest in, in the garden. Um, and we'll, we'll have more to say about that. The ark may fit as one, uh, but we'll, we'll go. The tabernacle, we had time, we could look at Exodus. And we can see a lot of the same parallels that we see here. We saw in the, ex, in, in, in the tabernacle. Um, the temples, of course. Jesus is a temple. In fact, John tells us, John 1.14, I quote it all the time. Um, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. The word is tabernacle. Uh, he is a temple. And, of course, the last temple is believers. Right, what do we have? The presence of God, atonement for sin, and an intercessor in Christ. Right? Um, so, so this is massive in terms of our understanding of the gospel and where all of this is going. Because ultimately, it concludes in heaven, which is an eternal temple, um, where God and man dwell together. What do you find is rivers running to the tree of life. I mean, so, so John is borrowing this garden language. So if we want to understand the temple here, we have to go back to, to the garden. So let me give you just a, a, a few connections here. Um, first is in both the garden and in the temple, God dwells with mankind. Oh, yeah, I forgot I have it up there. Oh, no, Don's not here to help me. That's okay. Um, um, actually, let me fix that real quick because I got... That, that, and, and the implication is this was a regular pattern in the garden. Well, in Leviticus, when describing the tabernacle and the temple, the whole point is that God will dwell with his people. And as, you, as you're reading in this, in, in, in this telling of the temple and in the Chronicles, the parallel version of it, God shows up in a cloud in a mighty, mighty way. And it, the place shakes and people know God is dwelling with his people. The goal of Jerusalem, the city of peace, is that God will dwell with his people. So that when people come to Jerusalem, they, they know that they are getting closer to the presence of God. And so the goal is, is, is the closer you are to God, the holier the people ought to be. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. I'm glad it, it's, uh, it works that way in churches now. But the, the closer you get to, to God, the holier the people are because God is dwelling with his people. Secondly, notice the... Um, well, if it's not going to do that again. The symbolism of the cherubim. Let me check this one more time. Symbolism of the cherubim. Of course, in Genesis, after they're kicked out of the garden, it is cherubim who... Um, I will restart you. Okay, hopefully it's the last one. Uh, 
Genesis 3, cherubim are placed in the garden. It's the first time cherubim uh, show up. So cherubim are not angels. Okay? Uh, they are separate from angels. Angels are predominantly um, um, human-like form. Angels don't have wings in the Bible. But cherubim and seraphim do. Seraphim means the burning ones. Uh, cherubim are usually described as a, a, a mixture of, uh, of various animals with wings and whatnot. Uh, these, 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 are, these are creatures I don't want to be um, bothered by. Um, well, what is in the Ark of, or what is in the Holy of Holies, right? Uh, this is actually where we left off. Um, uh, verse, uh, oh, chapter 8. Did I put it up? Yeah, chapter 8 here. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house. We'll come to, to that, that division here in a minute. To the most holy, this is the Holy of Holies, under the wings of the cherubim. And that language is the language of God's presence. Where does God dwell? He dwells under the wings of the cherubim, cherubim and seraphim. So when Isaiah gets a peek into the throne of God, what does he see? He sees the seraphim, the burning ones, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So no wonder then that when the presence of God is protected in the garden, it is cherubim who are there. And so you see that here. So, so you have the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments in it. We'll come to that. And over it, in an artistic style, uh, is, is cherubim. And uh, you can Google, you can get, get some, some good images of what that likely would have, would have looked like. So you see that in the garden, you see it in the temple. Thirdly, there's an emphasis on precious stones. So in Genesis 2, the goat of that land is good, the bedellium and the onyx stone are there. So, so you can do a, a fun little word search of these stones, and they pop up at interesting times. Usually in two places, the priest's garments, like the ephod, will have these stones in it. And any sort of temple, gold, right? We know of the streets of gold in heaven, uh, but also I think the uh, bedellium is, is mentioned in, in Revelation or Onyx, one of them. Well, guess what we, what we, is that we, oh, by the way, gold and these stones are all mentioned in Exodus 25, 28, uh, and 1 Chronicles 29 for both the tabernacle and the temple. And here, um, here it is in, in, in Chronicles um, where David is preparing it. And what is he? He goes, he gets the gold, he gets the silver, he gets the bronze, the iron, the wood, the onyx stones, the inlaid stones, the stains of uh, whatever that is, stones of various colors, right? Precious stones, right? He, he, he gets all the precious stones for Solomon to build the temple. Why? Because it's picking up language from, from the Garden of Eden. Um, look at chapter 7 of 1 Kings, uh, verse 48. Um, so Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side, five on the north before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, the tongs, the gold, the cups, the snuffers, the basins, the dishes for incense, fire pans of pure gold and sockets of gold, the doors in the innermost part of the house, most holy place and for the doors. And they, right? That's a lot of gold. I mean, Donald Trump eat your heart out, right? I mean, his, his hotels can't look like that. You always get nervous when you say Donald Trump. Like, can we just go back like pre-2015 and make a Donald Trump joke? You miss those days, don't you? You know, you can make fun of hair and, and no one freaked out. It just, anyways. Um, um, so precious stones, you get them in the garden, you get them in the temple. Fifthly is the presence of the tree of life. I find this interesting. Obviously, there is the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, obviously. 
and that tree sustains life. The, so long as they eat of the fruit, uh, it, it represents life, and they are, they are given the gift of life, right? That's the beauty of it. It's eternal life is sitting right there. And in the very heart of the garden, in the presence of God, they get eternal life. Well, most scholars agree that the, a, a picture of the tree of life is in the temple. And it's so obvious you'll never unsee it. It's the menorah. It's a picture of, it's basically a tree. And so you get in uh, chapter 7, so uh, we, we read chapter 6 to chapter 7, the lampstands of pure gold, right? We just saw this. Well, it's gold, that's the stones of the garden, and it's a lampstand. And it is to re- remind us that we are approaching a tree. Now remember what we've, we've done this several times in Genesis, that when God shows up to be with his people, there is usually a planting of a tree or some reference to a tree. So when Abraham is given his promise and he leaves Haran and goes to Canaan, he goes to the Oaks of Mamre. It's a tree there. And there he builds an altar. Right there. When, when he goes to sacrifice Isaac, his son, where does the ram get stuck? In the thickets. In plants. Huh? Um, when um, um, there's, 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 oh, uh, Noah built an ark out of a tree, right? I mean, it's a very specific tree. And God's presence is there in the ark. So you have to, and there's, there's, there's other ones. Uh, Abraham and uh, Abimelech will plant a tree as a covenant. Uh, so over and over and over again, I think God and the angels that go to Sodom, I think they rest under a tree uh, by the oaks of Mamre. So uh, this shows up all over the place in Genesis. So too, it makes sense that trees are often associated with the presence of God. So when you enter into the temple, you are reminded of that with the menorahs, of what was lost and now what, has been, what is being gained. How about garden-like decorations? Go back to chapter 6, verse 18. The cedar within the house, now notice the wood. It's a very specific type of tree. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers, all was cedar, no stone was seen. Now, the stones are important. Now, the trees are important. But it's not just that there are cedar trees, but they are carved with specific images. You can go down to verse 29. You'll see something similar. Around all the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim. Well, that sounds important. And palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. This is garden-like imagery. Fruit. Trees, cherubim, where do all of them meet in the Bible? It's, it's not in Egypt. Right? It's not in Babylon. It's, it's, it's in Eden. And so, the, so what you have, this is clearly not a Baptist church because they decorated the walls. And so when you come in, you, you see on the walls is garden-like imagery. And remember in the ancient world, God dwelt in gardens. Kings dwelt in gardens. That's why one of the seven wonders of the world is Nebuchadnezzar's hanging gardens. So a palace would have had a garden right next to it. Only the wealthy could have that. That's where the mighty uh, hang out. They have gardens. You read Song of Solomon, and so many things happens in the king's gardens. Not everyone had gardens. We have gardens. We go out and we plant you know, carrots or something. That is not their gardens at all. It was, it was very much a, 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 of an oasis and a place of peace. So here, when you enter into the temple, you get this garden imagery all, all around you. Um, how about a three-fold structure? I don't know how else to describe this. So I'll just show you a picture. Here you go. Very simple picture. Uh, 
Um, over here is the Garden of Eden. Over here is uh, the temple. I would have done things a little differently, but when you Google it, you, you take what you can get and to fit on the screen. So think about how the garden works. What we usually think is there was the Garden of Eden and there's the outside world. That's not actually how it is. What we call Eden or the Garden of Eden should be called the Garden in Eden. It's structured like a temple. So you have the wilderness out here, right? Um, and so it's mentioned there's dry land, all that sort of stuff. And then you come into Eden, and in that is the garden, and that is the tree of life. So the closer you get to the tree, the closer you're getting to God's presence. Because in the tree is, is eternal life. He's the giver of life. Right? Well, that's the way the temple and the tabernacle are structured. So you have, um, you, you have the wilderness, you know, outside, of course. You have the courtyard, so Gentiles can go there, the holy place, Israel go. Well, only the priests can go to the Holy of Holies. And what are the images you're seeing? You're seeing garden images, and, and it has the same sort of structure, both the garden and the temple. We're to see this. The, the, the Bible goes out of its way for us to see these sort of things. Okay, eighthly, there is an emphasis on rest in the temple. So... Go back to chapter 5 of 1 Kings, verse 4. So he's getting ready to build the temple. But now Yahweh my God has given me rest on every side. You think that's an important point to make there? At the end of the day, isn't that the promise of God that we will have rest? At the end of the day, that's what everybody wants. Right? I mean... COVID, we did very little and we were tired. <laughs> you notice that? You know, uh, what we want is rest, genuine rest. Now we may try to find that in entertainment and a host of other ways, but we want rest. And what's what Solomon's saying here is, is God has given me the, the promised land and he's given me rest on every side. No more war, no more violence. David was a man of violence. Solomon doesn't need to be. And so rest is now associated with the garden all the way back in creation. We'll skip down to chapter eight of first Kings. Verse 56. Now the ark has been brought in. Um, this is part of his prayer, um, which I don't know if we'll spend a whole lot of time on that. Um, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel. Now you see it? So, so you, have, you have the temple, you have the presence of God, and out of that comes God's rest for the people of God. So the garden was to be the place of rest. Now, they worked. It didn't mean they didn't work. It meant that in the presence of God, they, they had rest. On all sides, they had rest. Now, they were going to expand the borders of the garden into the wilderness. That's the goal. That's why in Genesis, God shows up in oases. So when Hagar is having to flee, she runs out of water. She looks up, and there's an oasis. God has showed that to her. Right? So, so that's what the garden is, an oasis in the middle of the wilderness. Well, here what it is you have is Jerusalem on top of a mountain, like the Garden of Eden is on top of a mountain, and, and you have rest for the people of God, especially as they get closer to the presence of God. Okay, one last thing. There is an emphasis on the east. Um, an emphasis on the east. Um, the temple was entered through the east, and this shows up... Um, all over the place. So in, in, in the Garden of Eden, where was the door? They, they kicked, right? They had to go out and they went east out of Eden. That's where the door was, 
right? What's, what's, you know, my, my dad likes to say, uh, you know, we may say, hey, by the way, there's a snake in the house. You're like, where would you like a door? Because that's where I'm going, right? <laughs> you know, right? Well, you, they, they could only go out one way because there was only one door, and it went to the east. And so in Genesis, going east means you're getting away from God's presence. Well, the temple of Solomon, there's only one way to enter it, and it was from the east, which makes sense because if, if exile was going east, then return is to come in from the east. Well, the future temple, uh, oh, by the way, uh, this is, uh, um, you see the uh, east is, all four sides are, are mentioned here, but this is one of the few references to the east in, in our, our passage. The future temple clearly states uh, that the entryway is to the east. And so the whole point is, is we are to see that, that what you have here, and it's easy to get lost in all the details, and I get it, and, and I, I've gotten lost in it. At the end of the day, what it is you have is God fulfilling his promises to be with his people despite their failures. And so you have is God will be with his people. And in chapter 8, which um, we can look at a little bit, uh, chapter 8, Solomon's prayer is, is basically, God, be with your people and forgive your people so that you can stay with us. That's his prayer. That's what the temple is all about. It's a place of God's presence. It's also a place of God's grace. Because God will stay holy, but his people will not. And when they make mistakes and they sin as a people and as individuals, the, Solomon is praying, Lord, will you draw them to repentance and restore them? But we don't want you to leave your people. So this is a major moment in the history of Israel, a, a massive moment. And we could say, when Solomon says that God has given me rest on all sides, we can almost say that's the climax of the Old Testament. It's all downhill from there. It never gets this good. So much so that when the second temple was built, the temple Jesus would have been familiar with, although renovated by Herod, what did that first generation say? They said, we remember Solomon's temple. And this ain't it. Well, yeah, because that's the climax. It'll never be that good. Because God had given rest on all, all, all their sides. And, and how did he give rest as he did it through, through grace? Well, let me, can I just give you a real quick summary of chapter 8, and we'll get out early. What it is you're getting in chapter 8 is, is the Ark of the Covenant coming, um, entering into the, the temple, and Solomon is doing all the work here. Now, Solomon is king. He is not the priest, but he's acting like it. Now, that can get you in trouble. But in the story we've talked about before, Solomon here is similar to David. He's acting as the royal priest. So, um, other people who did do this are, are like um, Adam is a royal priest. He's to be king in the garden, also priest. So he fails at both. He doesn't crush the serpent's head, nor does he guard the temple from the serpent. Uh, Abraham, of course, is. He's a chieftain who, you know, he, he gets an army and he goes to the war. He, he's, he's a king. He also makes sacrifices, um, builds altars. Isaac and Jacob, of course. Uh, Jethro is one. He's a royal priest. He's said to be a priest of God, but he's also the, the chieftain of his, of his clan, of the Mennonites. But also Melchizedek is the most noticeable, uh, notable one, right? But we've, we've spent like six weeks in Melchizedek. So. And Danny added another six weeks in the Sunday school class last year. So, so we don't need to chase that. But here Solomon is, is operating as, like his father, the royal priest. Remember David wore the priestly ephod? David ate the showbread? David led the Ark of the Covenant in the ephod and danced, right? Those are things priests do. Well, Solomon's doing that here. He installs the Ark of the Covenant or leads it there. 
Um, and nothing represented the, the presence of God more than, than the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and what's different with him is Solomon moved the Ark of the Covenant the correct way. Remember, David got so excited about it, he didn't do it the right way, and, and the guy died from touching it. You know? Well, Solomon didn't, didn't make, make that, that mistake. Um, uh, let me do some some schemes. Let me just give you a quick summary of, of chapter 8. Verses 12 to 24 is all, or 21 is all about God's, uh, God's presence. Uh, or 1 to 11, rather. It's all about God's presence. So the Ark of the Covenant means God is with his people. And by the way, let me just add that what, what is in the Ark is the Word of God. I don't think that's an accident. The Word of God and the presence of God go hand in hand. So putting the Ten Commandments in there, God's word written in stone, was a reminder that uh, they were to follow God's word, and that was the basis of their covenant of God's presence. Right? So you run the risk of God's presence being gone by breaking that. Same thing happened in the garden. Um, and some see a connection there with the trees in the garden, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and if you want to see verses 10 to 11 is when God descends upon the ark. He descends in the form of a cloud. It's the same cloud that led them through the wilderness. Same cloud that descended upon the tabernacle. Um, when they, they ascended into the Mount Sinai, it was, they could see through the cloud into, into the throne room. So they're no longer sojourners now. They're citizens. God is with his people. Uh, furthermore, it's God's faithfulness. Again, verses 12 to 21 uh, we, we, we can only touch on this. Mostly what Solomon says is, look what God has done. God promised my father David. This is, he's, he's a politician, so he spends more time on that he's the rightful king of Israel. And I, I, I get it. He said, look, God promised David two things. One, a temple for the permanent presence of God. So they're no longer wanderers in the wilderness. Here, God dwells in a permanent building. Secondly, God promised David that a son will sit permanently upon the throne of Israel. And Solomon's saying, today, God has proven his faithfulness to us. Here is God's presence with his people, and I am the fulfillment of that promise. And my son will be the fulfillment of that promise, and so on and so forth. So he's basically saying, look, God has kept his promise. He's faithful to us. It didn't look like it there for a while, but he is faithful. And then in verse 21, he mentions the exodus. It all started there when, when God led Moses and the people through the wilderness. And today is the day of that fulfillment, which reminds me of Hebrews 11. This is a verse I think we've got to keep in the back of our mind. And all these are the faith hall of fame, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised to them. Abraham dies. He has no land. He's a sojourner. All he owns is enough land to be buried on. That's not what God promised. He's got a few kids and grandkids, but not like the sands of, 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 the, of the shore or the stars of the sky. He dies believing the promise he never saw. Same with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. How about Caleb and Joshua, Samson, Othniel, all of them. They, David died. They never see the fulfillment of that promise. But they believe that God was faithful to that promise. Um, and, and so finally is fulfilled in, in Solomon. So then what we get is a large section on God's forgiveness, verses 22 to 53. Uh, notice verse 22, 822. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. That's not his job. That's the priest's job. 
Think about it. If, if the governor of Kentucky walked in here and said, all right, I'm going to do communion. You're like, you have, a, you have a role, and we appreciate your role, supporting. I'm glad I'm not doing it. This ain't it. Right? So, too, if I showed up in his daily press briefing and said, I'm going to talk to you about what I've been doing for our economy today. So we're like, you have a role, right? This ain't it. Okay? You do your thing and let the governor do his thing. So here you have the king. He has a role. He is interceding on behalf of the people as a priest. His arms stretched out like Moses was in the wilderness. Because Moses was the intercessor, the high priest. Solomon's doing that. He's the royal priest. And, and you may remember we saw Jesus as that high priest. Because he's not a son of Levi. He, he is a high priest in the spirit of Melchizedek. And he intercedes on, on behalf of his people. Well, so what, what does he do? In verse 31, 32, he says, when sin or sin... Forgive us, right? <laughs> like, we're going to do this. You know, today will be the last day we got this stuff figured out. Okay? And he prays for justice against the guilty and mercy towards the innocent. And then he gives specific examples. In verse 33 to 34, when the nation sins. It's interesting, isn't it? American evangelicals, we think only of the individual as the sinner. Jewish religion sees it as the individual and as the community. So what you get in American uh, theology is conservatives lean towards the individual because that's very American of us. Liberal theology leans more towards the collective. Have you noticed this in our secular debates? So we speak of systemic racism, right? That's the root problem. We have to deal with the system. There was a, my, my thesis was on a liberal theologian. He wouldn't speak of systematic theology. He'd only speak of, of uh, systemic theology. And it just annoyed me every time he said that. Uh, I just want to boink him in the eyes. But, but so what you have then in, in, in American theology is this bifurcation that is not very biblical. In the Bible, it's both. Nations turn away from God. Individuals turn away from God. They are related I mean, think about it. You can complain about the governor. You can complain about uh, elected officials. You can complain about the system all you want to. They are made up of individuals. But at the same time, individuals get caught up in the, into the system. It's both and. So if you want to purify one, you have to purify the other. You have to do both at the same time. So while we are trying to fix the system, we're not fixing the individual. And then when we're focused on the individual, we don't talk much about the corporate that's a big mistake. The Bible sees both here. So Solomon says, when we as a people rebel, let there be grace. And it is in this context, the parallel says this, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, right? It's this context. Usually what we do is take this verse and we make it about July 4th, 1776. The context is, when the people of God turn away, draw us back as a people and as, a, as individuals. Right? That's the context. Um, and it's here when Solomon is interceding on behalf of the Israelites. Uh, verse 35 through 40, he, he mentions when, when judgment comes, right? Um, and judgment, according to him, verse 35, comes by drought. In verse 37, it comes by famine, pestilence, attack, and plague. I think we've experienced all of those in the last, what, five years? <laughs> you know, see, California's got the drought, you know. Um, there's a famine of baby formula. Just all of a sudden that happened. Um, pestilence. Um, 
I could tell you a story. I won't do it since we're recording. I could tell you a story about it. I've been up since 5.30 because we had a pest in our house last night. And let me tell you, my baseball skills came in handy. I, I'll save it for a sermon illustration another day. Uh, attack, right? A war. Um, plague. Has there been a plague recently in the United States, right? I mean, you can look at this, you know. It's like, boy, this is kind of scary. Um, if my people will repent and call upon the name of the Lord. Um, regardless, the remedy amid judgment remains the same, right? And, and so you can compare. He has two sections there, and it's the same remedy. Prayer, verses 35 to 38. When we pray, listen to us. Repentance, verse 38. We will pray with repentance. Forgive us, verse 36 and 39. And then correct us, verse 37. We don't like that part when it comes to repentance, is it? So we see repentance as, as, as an apology, not as transformation. So we pray, repentance, forgive, and correct us. And then it's interesting, verse 41 to 43. He, he, he says, what do we do when immigrants sin? Now, why is that so important? It's because the Jews understood this was not a racially exclusive religion. The presence of God draws the nations. If you don't believe me, the very two chapters later, chapter 10, the story is about the nations coming to Israel. It's Queen Sheba. You could really say this is the climax of the Bible, the Old Testament. It's all downhill from here. What did she say? I didn't, I could, I didn't think everything people said about you could have been true, but now I realize they're, they're not being generous enough. Look at all the Lord has done. It's the nation. It's an immigrant. So what do we do when the Gentiles come and they sin? The answer? There's enough room for grace for them too. Now, is that good news for you and me? I am Scott Irish, about as Scott Irish as you can get minus the alcohol, okay? I'm a Gentile. Ever study the Scott Irish and the Anglo-Saxons and all that? We didn't say anything. We weren't good people. If there's grace for us, and it's right here. Remember, Abraham was among the nations he was drawn out and chosen to draw the nations to the presence of God. This is the hope. Isn't this what you're getting at the day of Pentecost? How is it? It's the opposite of Babel. How is it that I hear Christ preached in my Gentile language? Because that's the point of Israel, to be a light to the nations that are all the nations in. Well, finally, verse 44 to 50, 53, uh, he asks for God not to abandon them. Uh, so look at 46 to 50. This will be a good summary of the Old Testament in general. Um, if they sin against you, the people of Israel, for there is no one who does not sin... Just mark that out of your Bible. We don't need that anymore. Um, uh, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors saying, we have sinned, we have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of, of their enemies who carry them captive and pray to you towards their, their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, the house that I have built for your name. Then here in heaven, you see the same pattern we saw earlier. Here in heaven, your dwelling place. Wait, wait, I thought God dwelt in the temple. Well, now what do you do? It's the beauty of it. God is dwelling with his people, but God's, God isn't bound by a building. It's the God of the cosmos. 
Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. Verse 50. Forgive your people who have sinned against you and all the transgressions that they have committed against you. And grant them compassion in the sight of those who carry them captives, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. So on and, and so forth. Right? That's the summary of the rest of the Old Testament, isn't it? What does Josiah do? He leads the people to repentance when he discovers the word of God. And eventually that dies out. And what happens is they are sent off to Babylon. And what do they do? They cry out to God and he is gracious to them. Even though the temple is way over there, he meets them in Babylon. He forgives them. He draws his people back to the promised land. This is the summary of the rest of the Old Testament. And it's an answer to Solomon's prayer. Well, how about we just finish this out? We'll call it a day. Um, it ends with God's presence. Um, verse... Um, 56 is the true climax. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people, Israel, according to all that he has promised. Not one word has failed of all of his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. Boy, ain't that good news? Isn't that good news? This is God's presence to be with his people. He's faithful. Then note verse 57, it's Christmas all over again. The Lord our God, and so hot, right? We need a little bit of Christmas here. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. Now, who is it that came to dwell among us and before he left? What was his promise? I'll never leave you or forsake you. In fact, I am the temple, but now you are. So you know you'll, I'll never leave you. That's the beauty of the gospel. Christ fulfills all of this and then he gives it to us. So if people want to get a taste of redemption and grace and the presence of God, they should be able to look at their nearest Christian. But like the ancient Israelites, we don't always live up to that. But the good news of the temple is the presence of God, atonement for sins, and an intercessor. We have all three in Jesus. All right, let's get out of here. It's hot.